Welcome to episode 140 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, coming to you from NoPro headquarters in Los Angeles. This week on the show, writer-director Edward Robles of Here Be Dragons joins us. Uh, that's right, second, uh, second dragon, back in the dragon den. Second Dragon, uh, Edward is coming to talk to us about Dispatch, which is his piece that was recently at Sundance. Uh, you can also find it uh, you know, in the Oculus Store and all, all the wonderful things. It is an episodic VR narrative, um, which is a, a little bit different from some of the other stuff you've probably uh, encountered so far. We have a, uh, a talk about you know, how he got into it, how he wound up at Dragons, etc., etc. It's another one of those, uh, you know, take a crowbar... Uh, you know, wedge the door open and find out how the magic is made here in Hollywood, in Hollywood uh, episode. Um, Speaking of locales, this is a terrible transition. Segways, not my strong suit this week. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to Kara Mandel, Amanda Shuckman, and Rachel Walker for kicking so much butt out in Austin for us. Uh, with the South by Southwest coverage. There's some more stuff that's going to be coming in. There's some video interviews that are are coalescing uh, since they've been running around Austin, but they, they really knocked it out of the park with that Westworld video. If you haven't seen it yet, and given the number of people who have seen it, odds are you have. Uh, they did a 15-minute walkthrough uh, the first night. I think I talked about it on last week's episode because they did it on Thursday and they had it up. So it was like one of the first ones out there. So... A plus plus. Uh, Kara's going to be headed next to uh, Overlook. Um, got some paperwork I got to deal with on that. Um, it's been uh, been some busy weeks, busy, busy, busy weeks here. Uh, partly because we've got this uh, whole Patreon campaign going. Now I know you're going to skip forward. Just give me give me twenty seconds before I do all the stuff. Don't skip quite yet, okay? Um, we have refreshed, completely refreshed. The Patreon page. Uh, the goals are different. Oh, they're mighty different. Uh, the rewards are different. You might want to check, particularly if you're a backer. Um, th- there's some th- some promises are like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense anymore. Here's what we're doing for you instead. Um, and uh, there's there's new reward tiers, and uh, there's a, a, a new video, um, which is a, a new video. Uh- <laughs> Um, it's, it's, it's fine. It's one, it's a one taker. Um, here's what's up. Here's the status report. All right. Uh, so, you know, by the way, uh, patreon.com slash no proscenium or any of the thousand links that we're sending out this week and next week. Um, uh, we're dead serious about this whole no pro goes pro campaign by the end of the year. Um, Yeah. Uh, through, through by hook, by crook, through many different means, uh, I want to be able to be full-time in immersive land. Uh, as much of that that can be fueled by the community as a whole through the Patreon campaign, great. 
there's definitely uh, some other possibilities out there, but everyone knows how stitching together uh, a freelance life is. Uh, it's next to impossible. Um, so this is what, uh, and, and, and of course, the more you're serving other masters, uh, the less you can serve the cause. So this is about the cause patreon.com slash no percentium. Um, I'm trying to develop a new nervous tick. Sorry. Um, let me give you the update. So we started out with uh, the goal of 264 backers, uh, for the month, uh, from doubling us from 132 right now in the middle of the month, we've got 148. So the good news is that we got 16 new backers. The bad news is, is that we are, a, you know, about 100 and what's the math on that? I'm not good with math. We're 116 is what we are. So we need what we've gotten before plus 100 more to hit the backer number. Now, <clears throat> you, you don't need to jump in at a lot of money. And some folks have been upping their pledges. And that is totally sweet, and and I'm thankful for for you for doing that, and I I never expect anyone to do that. I'm also not entirely surprised when some people do it because it's like, oh yeah, good, I get this thing, and that's 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 cool. What I really want is that over 200 number. Um, if by some means, right? Like, let me be realistic here. Are we going to get to 264 by the end of March? No way. Not not without a miracle. We would need your help in a big way to do that. Could we breach 200? Also tough, but 54 is a lot simpler than 116 um, by like an order of magnitude. So what this week is all about in the campaign is about proselytizing. <laughs> However you say that, I need you to be my... Evangelists. I need some John the Baptists out there bringing the good word of no proscenium to the world. Did I just do that? I might have. Am I going to cut it? No, that's okay. Um, if I offended anyone, I'm sorry. I'm often a rogue biblical scholar um, <laughs> doing inappropriate things. Uh, I need you to get the word out there. Um, the other bit of good news is we've jumped from $782 a month to 917. So we're really close to clearing the $1,000 goal. The goal for the month, of course, was hopefully to get to 1564 because the whole idea was doubling. Um, <clears throat> we're, we're going to keep on going until we've doubled. Uh, we're going to keep on keeping the heat on. Uh, so it may take a while and then we'll, uh, hit the reset button and, you know, look at things again. Um, what I want to impress upon you is that this is not um, this is not a joke. This is not a game. Uh, I, I'm not sitting on a pile of unused lotto winnings. Um, I am I I am not ubiquitous. Um, I am I'm not nearly as prolific as I'd like to be. The whole point of this is if we can become self-sustaining, if we can, have me pivot and in the long run have another member of the team pivot to this full time, we can do so much more, so much more than what we're doing right now. Um, and we can't do it unless we get the community's help because there are no advertising dollars in the world anymore. Just laying it out there to you. So a dollar a month, $5 a month if you can, if you're you're super passionate and you want to give more, I ain't gonna stop you. But 
it would mean so much to me if everyone who regularly listens to this podcast, and I know there's more than what we have in the Patreon campaign, if they give, if everyone who regularly opens up the newsletter, we can do this. We can do this with your support. All right. That is enough of that. Uh, Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Let's talk about the people who did jump in uh, this week uh, and who will, of course, be helping to spread the word. Brent Bushnell, Michael Anderson, Lauren DeNoya, Cindy Marie Jenkins, Maggie Lane, Christopher K. Grapp, Mike LBC, Chris Tonic, Matthew Campbell. Thank all of you. All of you. I'm, I'm making the rock'em horns. Make, thank all of you for... I was going to say something cheesy. I don't want to say something cheesy. Just thank you. There. Means a lot. The sustaining backers for No Persinium, as always, are Bradley Smith, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Arthur Tubman, Ari Herstand, and Ross Sigworth. Ross uh, upped his pledge, <clears throat> which shocked the heck out of me. Uh, and I wanted to acknowledge that. And 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 now I'm going to put him at the, at the end of the credit things. Okay, enough of all that. Clearing that up. Let's set up the interview, and then we'll ramble about stuff on the other side. Edward, what do you need to know about Edward Robles? Uh, Ed's great. Uh, he's he, you know we've been looking to do this one for a bit. Uh, we hang out at the same coffee shop, the same cafe on on the weekends, and I was like, you want to come over and do the podcast sometime? Because uh, I'll run into him. He'll be working on something. Um, what was so great about Dispatch is it. We're getting into that phase of VR where the lessons from other mediums are really being absorbed. And some of that is the what is this thing and how can we use it to its best effect? So we talk a lot about attention in this one. Uh, We talk a lot about just storytelling in general. This is a good one. Um, I want you to, if if you've got the ability to, you know, break out the rift, go over to a friend who has a rift and check out Dispatch. It's a, a wonderful mashup of sort of the serialized podcast storytelling and the, the visual, just a, 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 a visual palette that uh, is unique to computer generated stuff. There, that's the way to say it. Um, you know, I just extemporaneize these things, right? I also butcher the English language on a regular basis. I nearly said human language, uh, which is very, very uh, Eurocentric of me, I guess. I don't know. Um, The coffee. It's not doing the the job this morning. (laughs) I'm going to drink some more coffee, and I'll see you on the other side of the interview. Edward, we, we had the the fun and always awkward uh, first talk ever when I was sitting down and right after I'd sat down and like s- watched one of your works while you were like five feet away from me. So, but luckily it was good <laughs> and we had a great conversation afterwards. Um, you're, you're a writer and director at Here Be Dragons and that work was Dispatch, which just showed um, at Sundance, right? Yep. So and and for the record, this is a this is a VR uh, a, a well describe it like because I don't want to I don't want to mess up and say the wrong thing in terms of of how you would describe Dispatch. So Dispatch is a uh, it's a episodic 
uh, narrative. It's an episodic uh, suspense thriller told in virtual reality. So it's it's sort of um, it, it takes the VR is is the platform. It it, it was created in the game engine, which. Um, allowed us to create content in a 360 environment where there's something in every direction. Um, it was created for specifically the Oculus Rift and the Oculus Gear platforms. Um, it is, I'm just, the, the, the quick sort of like quick and dirty text of it, or text sort of specs is that it's it's sixed off, six degrees of freedom on the Rift and three off, three degrees of freedom on, on the Gear. Um, each episode is about five and a half, six minutes long. Uh, it's about a police dispatcher who's sort of having the worst night of his life. Um, and every call sort of tumbles deeper and deeper into this sort of um, relentless pit of hell he kind of finds himself in where it's just cascading crime that, that keeps on um, rearing its head. It's kind of akin to a podcast. I, I, I think of it as like, something like Homecoming or, or Serial um, or, or even something a lot older like, you know, what Orson Welles was doing way back when. Um, in that way, it's accessible. It's something you could probably listen to without even having to experience the visual of it and, and understand. Oh, yeah, I could, I, could, I could totally not see that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and Martin Starr is is the is the lead character. Yeah, Martin Starr is our is our dispatcher uh, Ted, who's sort of our protagonist, who hates his job and wants to quit. And sort of uh, at every turn in the story, um, is reminded why he hates the job for all these reasons that we think we understand, um, specifically relating to his inability to actually help anybody. He constantly feels like he's. He's sort of like inches away, but also miles apart mm. is kind of what dispatch is about. Because yeah. that's what dispatchers are. I mean, imagine talking to somebody on the phone. If you don't know what that person looks like, you sort of build this mental image of them. And, and every sound that you hear, be it in a podcast or, or be it uh, in a song or be it on a phone call, your, your mind automatically starts to fill in that world. And so the way in which dispatch is told Obviously, it's kind of this audio play, this four-episode audio play. But really, you're seeing everything through Ted's imagination. So everything he's hearing, he's imagining. So the the sort of like the thesis, the sort of uh, first idea of Dispatch is that dispatchers probably have a more aggressive imagination. Hmm. They probably have a more um, robust foundation for how to imagine things because they're listening all day long. And they're not just listening. They're trying to suss things out. They're trying to figure out what's happening because the person they're talking to may or may not be reliable. Uh, and so they're almost like sonic detectives in a weird way, uh, at least those of them who really care about their job and who are kind of focused. Um, and so the, the premise was everything he's imagining we're seeing in the sort of reduced style, sort of really minimalist sort of line vector space style um, and the story is told through these representations uh, that are not photorealistic, that don't take up the full 360 uh, sort of field of view, which, you know, a lot of people thought was, was sort of a, a taboo or, or a no-no in VR. Um, but we did that in a way to focus the audience's attention on, on one thing so they can uh, understand a very fast and propulsive story. Yeah, it reminds me of something because just just last night when we were, uh, 
this recording session, you know, I, you know, Justin, Justin Denton was sitting in that chair and we were talking about like, you know, focus in VR and like this idea of like, oh, it's, you know, you don't need to worry necessarily about the thing behind the person's head. Like if, if you're, if you're doing it right, if you're telling the story right, if you're engaging the, the audience, they're going to, you know, be focused on the thing that they should be focusing on. And so this is almost like, okay, we're just going to give you what it is you actually need to look at. And if you decide you want to turn your head away and like, oh, maybe there's going to be something else there. It's almost this like, I don't know, there's something, there's something, uh, I don't want to say childlike about it, but it's like, it's, there's a, there's a sort of an instinct of the new when, when you first get VR on, you first go into immersive theater piece and you're like oh i can look anywhere and then that novelty kind of wears off once you're like oh yeah but just give me something i can focus on right you know <laughs> yes. like after the first three or four times you're like "Ooh, i've got this all this frill yeah like unless there's some depth to it right you know this idea that we have to like fill in the whole 360 and give this like unending panorama it's it's exhausting you know. It's exhausting, and I think we're all moving past it in different ways. There's a few pieces I saw at Sundance that that are really moving past it. Um, Battle Scar, this this company Atlas Five in, in in Paris is doing amazing work, and this piece called Battle Scar is the same kind of like I call it segmentation. So, mm. um, really, what it comes down to is, and this is different for different people. This is different. I, I'm not a big video gamer, although I I really appreciate the level that video games have, have, have kind of gotten to in terms of integrating story into gameplay. So I by no means want to shit on the gaming industry because they do amazing, amazing work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for me, uh, story is not about choice. Story is about story. Story is mm. about me telling you something. And, you know, you can close your ears or close your eyes. It's up to you. Uh, and so I don't think that should be any different in VR. So VR traditionally, and traditionally I mean by the past three years <laughs> since I've been in VR... <laughs> You know, I remember having conversations with Justin and we would say, wouldn't it be great if something was happening, you know, here to, to the left of you, but also simultaneously something was happening here to the, to the right of you. And, and like you had a choice to like look at one, but you'd miss the other. And like, wouldn't that be great? And everyone in the room's like, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, and we learned quickly that that's not great. <laughs> that's not even good. Yeah. Uh, and so... For me, you know, by extension, particularly, particularly when when the field of of view on a thing is like you know taking your hands and pretending you're holding <laughs> coke bottles up and like so you can't you have no peripheral vision. I remember the first time I saw a piece w- with a with a headset that was you know two cell phones next to each other as opposed to one cell phone, and it was it was a revelation because suddenly instead of turning my head to look around, I was just moving my eyes like I naturally do. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know, like, and so there's, there's all these ways of, like, artificially constraining us in in these pieces. And you can either play with those constraints or you can say, nah, let's, let's, let's use what we got here. You know? That's kind of how I feel is I, I'm a student of film. Uh, that's, that's sort of been my, my first love. And so... You know, in a film, you don't have a choice. You're, you're being told a story. I, I recently read a book that I, I absolutely loved, and I wish I read it before I made Dispatch because it would have made my life much easier, um, which is Understanding Comics. Oh, yeah, uh, Scott McCloud. Scott McCloud. So good. So that was on... So I went to school for cinematography. Mm. That was my major um, in Chicago, Columbia College, Chicago. And um, 
that book was in every syllabus as like a suggested reading. And I was always like, fuck suggested reading (laughs) in college. What am I here to read? And so I never picked it up for years and years. And I only recently after dispatch came out, thought like, you know, I want to continue my learning. I want to, I want to read more that I feel like I'm going to learn something when I read it. And uh, in the book, Scott outlines what the definition of comics are. Um, it's so good. It's so good. If, so good. If, if I remember correctly, it's because he goes by a few different rankings, and mm-hmm. it's the same definition as, as film with a few key differences, which is sequential, pictorial, curated information. Mm-hmm. Sequential is in it's happening one after the other. Um, curated is in it's you know specially chosen. Pictorial is in it's obviously pictures. Information is in there's something in that image that's telling you something. Um, what I would add with, with film and, and obviously VR is a bit different is, uh, audio as, mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so you take that and take a sort of traditional understanding of cinematography from a, from a, a film perspective. And my interest in VR quickly became, how can I tell information at a rate that is close to film? Mm. Because you have a film like, you know, trip to the moon in uh, 1914 right. and you have, the born ultimatum and the, the, the length of the cut is grossly deteriorated or, or, you know, been stripped down. Um, the tempo of music, the, the tempo of imagery, where your eye is being directed in the frame, which creates a physiological response. You know, that's right. why there's a certain place you're supposed to sit in a theater that allows you to actually turn your head as you, as you watch a film. Um, all of those things coalesced into what dispatch became, which is, if I'm going to tell a fast story, then I need to tell a story with sequential, pictorial, curated information. And if I'm telling a lot of information, then I can't show everybody everything. You know, the, the visual majesty of it, the visual sort of uh, information load has to be greatly diminished so that you can tell more story. It's almost like there's two, there's, there's two uh, sort of like... Um, I don't know, like it's like there's an axis. There's like an axis. You, you you go and you, you, you the it's a, or a slider, right? You know, it's like the more of this you have, the less of that you have. Yeah, no, I get it. It's like like this sense of the more visual information is coming through. Well, that's why that's what's interesting, right? Like I remember when the VR kits first started hitting, and they were putting. And everyone was like, oh, let's put a shooter in there. Let's do this. And they were just porting stuff over. Because the very first Oculus Rift's like, it was just, oh, let's get, here's an Unreal game. We can plug it in there. Yeah. And, and there'd be these, like, mech fighting games and all this stuff. And they quickly learned that, like, action games were way too fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, because people couldn't orient themselves yeah. fast enough, you know? This 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 version of people, mm-hmm. you know, right. in, in the same way that we came a long way from a trip to the moon. It's not just the the films that changed; it's us that changed. Oh, yeah. So, you couldn't take someone who hadn't seen MTV and put them in front of the born anything and not no. have them like, like have a stroke. Spring Breakers by what's his name? Um, oh, Harmony Korine. Yeah, Harmony Korine. Without without MTV, uh, you can't you can't oh, yeah. see Spring Breakers. Um, but. You're right. It is a lever. If you have that visual majesty, you can't tell much of a story. And if you have a great story that you want to tell that's very propulsive, and by propulsive, I mean like things things begetting things. Yeah. 
not like a simple three act structure. I, I don't abide by the three act structure. I don't, I don't believe in it. Thank God. Um, <laughs> stories are broken into acts and an act means that a character or a series of characters have made a choice they can't come back from. Malcolm X has like 11 acts, yeah. you know, like inception has a billion like amazing films have a billion acts. It's because they keep on putting their characters in situations where they've made choices they can't come back from. So if you've got that kind of story, well, you can't be showing us that much stuff. You've got to let us focus on the information that you want us to digest so that we can keep up. It's interesting. It makes me think of there's a sparseness to a fair amount of immersive theater design, even when it's lush. There's almost like a dreamlike quality. Um, and an object here, an object there, or the suggestion of a type of space can often be enough. Like, I don't... Th the, the scenes I remember most in, in, in pieces often aren't uh, in spaces that have all that much in them. Um, and then, you know, you might walk around and find, like, a very, very well-detailed piece of set that you can, like, explore at your will. But... You, and you may get narrative information out of it but you won't necessarily have anything dramatic occur in that space because that space is so narratively dense on its own right like it's it's the it's the equivalent of watching the movie and then going oh huh that was really interesting i think i'll go read the wikipedia page that explains everything that like i don't understand yeah um, and you can kind of build that into a world um, well, what's interesting about sort of I've only done a very small number of immersive theater experiences and to, to varying degrees of, of sort of um, entertainment, I'll say. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the names of them for the life of me. But I, I also think that what you don't can, worry, I'll probably figure out what it was. I'll be like, oh, that one's that one. <laughs> um, a woman was doing this. That one is this one. <laughs> uh, I, the one I did most recently was there was a naked woman that kissed me. In this house in the hills. Uh, stars of the night. Stars of the night. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. Um, yeah, yeah. I told you I'll tell you that, what it is. <laughs> that wasn't just a dream that I had. That was an actual thing. Um, no, no. So what I'll also lump into the, the, the category, and I could be doing this falsely, uh, mm. uh, of immersive theater, is home haunts or haunted houses or sort of walkthroughs. Like oh, yeah, the, no, that's, those that's kinds part of our realm, yeah. Those really professionally done um, experiences where you're walking through a curated space that is meant to... Have you ever gotten to do Delusion? No, you? I get the emails. Oh! And I've been meaning to do it. Oh, hopefully Delusion will return this year because if you're a home haunt guy, you'll... you'll yeah, Delusion. Anyway, keep going. That's what yeah. I got to do. But yeah, yeah. I, th there's, there's a great... Great documentary. It was on Netflix a while ago, uh, and it was about people who made their own their own home haunts mm -hmm. in um, the sort of the northeast, so like kind of Boston area, that that whole area. Oh, cool. And um, it was just a bunch of like, you know, guys of sort of like middle age who had their own homes and families and jobs and sort of worlds outside of this thing but they would build these elaborate home haunts every october in their yards or their basements or whatever and it was this big thing and it was like it was like a communal thing where people would go and they'd look forward to trying mr bradford's home haunt or whatever it is they'd pour their heart and soul into it but you get this sort of perspective on how they build these things and those are built on negative space in that you know, you're waiting for the scare. You're looking for that thing that's going to scare you. And you need a lot of nothing 
to punctuate the something. Mm. And that's kind of kind of how film is, kind of how music is, kind of how you know VR is to a certain extent. It's how stories are. It's about punctuation and sort of rhythm and balance. Mm. But using that rhythm and balance for the, for the uh, objective of scaring somebody. Which there are moments of that in Dispatch where I wanted to scare somebody or, or create suspense. Um, but I'd be curious how that works further in immersive theater. Like how, how, how the, the engineer of a scare or the engineer of a terrifying mood is created. Or, or suspense in general. I mean, it's, it's very much the same, right? I mean, there's a lot of the DNA of a haunt is in um, even pieces like you know, Then She Fell, right? Um, which is in New York. It's one of the more famous pieces. It's a, it's, it's, it's a more curated experience as opposed to sort of the sandbox that is, uh, that is Sleep No More, which is the most famous one, right? It's mm-hmm. so like Then She Fell, I like to refer to it as a dark ride, kind of like a Disneyland, right? And if you think of a dark ride at Disneyland, right? I mean, there are empty spaces. Yeah. You know, it's like, yes. it's all about the turn and like, you know, oh, there's the queen. Oh, it's the hag, right? And yeah. And turning. Um, when they did before they did then she fell they did a steampunk haunted house like that was the thing it was kind of more of an art thing than a real haunted house but that's they, pretty cool but that's the thing that was part of the the dna that led to that show um it is about that balance it is about it is about like waiting and pacing and we talk a lot about throughput, particularly for sort of the dark ride type pieces. Uh-huh. It's like, you know, how are we moving the person through the space? And and the managing of attention. I mean, one of the things that was interesting about Sleep No More for me was the way they were able to use social cues to manage attention. So you have a room full of a hundred people or more, and you're trying to like manage where they're looking without using really obvious lighting. Uh, or really obvious sound. And the way they did it is they engineered the scene so that, you know, everyone's coming at their own, you know, in their own time. Most people are coming in following a character. And that character pays attention to a central character in the room. Uh, and then the next character comes in and does the same thing. You see, you have this sort of ritualistic, like, oh, we're paying attention to the hostess. So they're establishing a social pattern, a transfer of energy, a transfer of power. Uh, and that character ultimately looks up at another character that's entered, and the whole room whips and looks and follows her eyeline to see, you know the Scott himself, Mackers, shows up, and that's his entrance. And if you think about how important an actor or a character's interest, entrance is to a, a scene, right? Like, you know, the, the most famous entrance in all of film is probably Orson Welles' Harry Lime, right? <laughs> uh, and it's been built up and built up and built up because we've been talking about Harry Lime for, like, two acts and, like, no one's seen him. Uh, and he manages to be the star of the damn movie even though he's only in, like... 25 minutes of it or something like that, right? Poor Joseph Cotton. Um, and But it's Orson. What you going to do? Uh, he lit himself because he knew what he was doing. Um, so it's, it's that they were all his good sides when he controlled the light. That man's um, a treasure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I may or may not have uh, read some biographies. Um, but um, the, the the point is is that uh, you you don't have that edit. In, in film, in, in VR or in immersive, you've got attention 
and how you're managing attention and whether and what you're doing with it and what's also interesting about you know that particular space in uh in sleep no more is that it's a fairly sparsely decorated set mm-hmm. there's a few pieces in there um there's a big table like up on a dias but it's mostly blank and it's just like g- gatherings of people um but that's that simplicity of oh i was following banquo and he's paying attention to lady m and lady m throws her attention it's it's uh it's a yeah, trying to tie it back by saying i was gonna say and try it like it's a key thing but it's it's just it's it's so simple it's so simple it's it's tiny and it's natural and you you almost it's a it's a trick insofar as that it works but it's not even really a trick because if if you know you're paying attention to me and i'm paying attention to you and if suddenly something drew your attention away that i didn't notice like you like looked up and behind me i would look up behind me because i'd be like oh what's going on well right? it's 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 like this humanistic thing to to sort of it, it's all based it's all rooted in survival right it, it, that's what it is there's yeah. actually really uh this is Sort of related, pretty much not related at all. There's this amazing story. Welcome I read. to the show. Yes, yeah. <laughs> amazing story I read uh, a couple of years ago that this um, this skeleton was found somewhere in Africa or, or sort of like Middle East or maybe like Central Asia, where it was the skeleton of a, of a child, uh, maybe five years old, mm-hmm. and um, there were heavy grooves in the in the skull like by the eyes where a bird had swooped Ugh. in and grabbed the child and like flown off with it oh man yeah and, and it's it's like anecdotes like that that teach you that like if you if if we're outside and there's like a shadow that sort of like dance like races across the ground yeah we we look up immediately because we've been looking up for hundreds of thousands of years for our own survival because like what the fuck is out there so it's amazing how how these things can be rooted back backwards into into sort of uh you know the the simplest the simplest uh sort of definitions of what we've been doing this whole time as humans is like procreating you eating uh or surviving in some way or just trying to uh just trying to find ways to engineer our existence so that we don't have to do those things anymore. Right. Um, and, you know, how do you, to your point, how do you take advantage of those primitive cues in a way that that doesn't necessarily bog the audience down with the reason behind why the cue works, but rather takes advantage of just the fact that it does. Yeah. There's a lot of that in, in magic, stage magic, right? I was in thinking illusion. magic for a while now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like that's it's it's an art form that I don't have a great uh, grasp on, um, and yet illusion is so key to so much of this of this work. And like you know, I've you know we've talked. I mean, you know, I've had uh, this cat Vinny DePonto on the show, and he's like worked with Third Rail Projects on on crafting illusions for their shows. And then of course, like the one of the 
one of the heads of the void is Curtis Hickman, and like he was designing stuff for David Copperfield and guys like that. Before I didn't was, know that. Oh yeah, that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, no, Curtis is an illusionist, right? So this this whole idea of of that whole science is about that whole craft is about exploiting you know the gaps in our perception. So, uh, on, sorry to cut you off. No, uh, on, on the please subject, always yeah, cut me off. Here we are at the, on, yeah. on the podcast, yeah. apologizing for cutting people off. <laughs> um, the it's funny you bring up magic and Copperfield specifically because I just listened to um, a This American Life episode about magic where Ira basically confesses that he was a child magician. He was, he was, a, he was a 12 year old in a cape. Everything makes sense now. <laughs> and it he so he would sense. like make money. Like he had a business card that oh, said like my some some bullshit like, you know, magician extraordinaire or something. Yeah. And he would play kids birthdays. The great Gasolini. So the, the yeah. whole the whole sort of the whole like, you know, narrative thread of the podcast was him trying to ascertain whether or not he was actually good. Or whether he was just that 12-year-old magician kid that people were like, get a load of this kid. He's playing our kid's birthday party. He's hilarious. Like, was he like a laughing stock and people mm. hired him because they liked the fact that he was a 12-year-old magician? <laughs> or was he really decent? But in the episode, he talks about, uh, I think it was Copperfield, when he uh, made the Statue of Liberty disappear. I remember that. Yeah. I wasn't there, but I saw it on TV, which does not count, but does. So you're going to really appreciate this. So in, in the po- in the sort of like episode, they explore a little bit about um, the prevailing theory mm-hmm. behind how he made it disappear, which is pretty extraordinarily simple. So he was like 26 years old when this when he a- attempted this, which is batshit crazy. Wait, Copperfield was only 26 when he did that? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. He always, he looked 40 for like a good 20 years there. So like he just didn't, I guess that's the thing. It's I thought, I thought it was like, oh, he's not aging until he really started to age. Oh no. He just, he just, he was a child making ridiculous claims and then actually backing them up. But the prevailing theory is that, so in the, in the, uh, the the sort of the uh, TV live feed mm-hmm. when it was happening because it was broadcast to like whatever channel cbs cbs <laughs> when it was broadcast <laughs> on cbs that. and dan rather was narrating it yeah. um there's there's a one there's one unobstructed uh shot that mm-hmm. is not messed with not paused not, nothing just one straight shot there's the audience kind of at the bottom of the frame you can see them and there are these two giant um pillars these two giant sort of like um, they look like the, the, the tresses that uh, the Eiffel Tower are made of. Mm-hmm. And they are holding up a giant um, red curtain. And so giant tre- you know, giant tress, giant tress, uh, red curtain. And the Eiffel Tower is obviously behind the red curtain some distance away. So what happens in the show is he's like, he does some magic thing, waves his hands in the air, concentrates really hard. Mm-hmm. And then they drop the curtain and it's, gone it's nighttime and there's there was a helicopter that was flying around it mm-hmm. and now the helicopter's flying around empty air yeah everyone's like oh my god so the way that that they they did it quote unquote is um he the entire little island of people that were there on mm-hmm. this sort of like barge or whatever it was it wasn't a barge it was like an actual island right they were on a platform that rotated 
and it rotated just enough so that the that the uh, Statue of Liberty was behind one of the metal tr- uh, trusses, oh. like X number of degrees. And the helicopter, which was our frame of reference in the shot, right. when he was doing the magic stuff, flew a bit to stay in line with the rotating platform so that when the curtain drops, all you see is a helicopter with empty air. And it's just right there. It's just right to the side. And yeah. the people who were in the audience... They're all looking this they're way. They're all looking... Th- if they just look to the right... That's all it is. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> so... Suckers born every minute, particularly on CBS. No, <laughs> I don't remember. It might not have been CBS. I think it was. CBS, Sounds like you though. have stock in ABC or something. Yeah, oh, you know, um, look, Disney owns everything. Maybe they own me. So um, I was about to say, I wish. I don't know why. That's that's not yeah, a good thing. I, I wish Bob Iger owned me. Oh God, he treats treats his IP well. He treats his IP pretty well. I could be I could be an intellectual property for Disney. Uh, there's several Imagineers right now who listen to the show who are cringing. <laughs> They're like, crying. I feel like in some way, shape, or form, Disney probably owns Dispatch. I, I don't know how, but I bet they do. You just and trace just, it, man. There's only like four or five media companies left. Or follow the money. Yeah. No. Actually, that was that was the tangent. But I, I was looking at someone. Someone was doing the usual, like you know, like only six media companies do all the media, like in in the country. And and I saw that and I was like, oh, so things haven't changed since the 90s. That's great. Like, it's kind of been <laughs> The same six. Yeah. yeah. Well, different six, but different at least it's still just six. You know, I'm like, oh, good. We haven't gone down. We're not down to four yet. Give it time. Uh, give it time. There's some mathematical equation that makes it just stay at six. Yeah. How'd you get to doing VR? How'd you wind up at Dragon's That's doing a good VR? question. So, um... Here Be Dragons is in a building with uh, Smuggler, the commercial production company. So Smuggler is like, you know, the like if you want a Super Bowl commercial or something, you want a commercial for the Oscars, you go to them. They're they're the best. They have the best directing roster. They have just the best everything. And so I started working there. I got an internship. You know, when I moved out to L.A. from Chicago, fell ass backwards into an internship was a terrible intern, uh, but I was an intern. I stuck around longer than like three month period to the point where they were like, it's time to go, Ed. And uh, I stuck around long enough for an assistant to a director to be like, my time is out, I'm leaving. And I was friends with the guy, uh, his name is uh, Matt Key, and he put me up for, for the job. Uh, and the director is a guy named Guy Shalmerdine, who is also VR director extraordinaire who made Mule and Catatonic. Oh, yeah. Um, both of which I, I was lucky enough to co-write. So I worked with Guy in a corner office of Smuggler for about three, two and a half, three years, just writing commercial treatments and, and spitballing creative ideas and writing other stuff and doing his laundry and you know walking his dog and, and being an assistant in every capacity. But I was always a writer. When uh, Hubie Dragon started, it was Back then it was called Verse uh, with Chris Milk and Sam Store, And they were in the office directly across the hall. And they were trying to finish uh, a couple of pieces. And they, they weren't really sure what they were doing. And, and nobody was at that point, least of all me. Um, Chris, I think he'd, he'd just done um, Evolution of Verse, which mm-hmm. is that really awesome piece with the train and the, the, the birds. And uh, simply because I was the closest warm body they grabbed me every so often, got my opinion on some some edits and got my opinion on some this and that. And um, 
one thing led to another and they said, well, we need a, a writer because we're actually going to be growing and there's some interest in the company and we're, you know, we're going skyward. Uh, the company is co-owned by one of the, uh, one of the two owners or both the owners of, of uh, Smuggler. So there's some, there's some shared blood there. And so I was kind of at that time where I didn't want to be an assistant anymore. They were offering me a, a writing job and so I took it and that was actually... Um, they had formed a partnership with Annapurna, a production mm. company. So Annapurna had an interest in VR, and um, Verse split into two companies. Verse being what Chris Milk eventually made within, right? And which Verse, is an app you can get on your phone, and 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 the whole nine yards there. Yeah. Within is very much like uh, you know the HBO of, of of VR. It's a platform that has great content, um, some of which is original, like like HBO. Then the other split uh, of, of those two companies is Verse Works. And so that was what Here Be Dragons was before mm. they were Here Be Dragons. So Verse Works was always meant to be the production company arm of Verse. So Verse being the platform, Verse Works being the people who actually make the stuff. I was hired as uh, the first and only employee of Verse Farm. Verse.farm, yeah, it gets real crazy. Verse.farm. Is chickens for them or something like no, that? I, no, I don't expect anyone to follow this okay. if you're listening. But it basically, Verse.farm was Annapurna's interest in, in VR, their relationship. And so my job was basic development and also some writing and also sort of like nurturing their directors and anybody interested in VR. And so I would write with certain directors. I, I wrote a lot with Shikhar Kapoor, the director of Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Golden Age and a bunch of other awesome movies. He's just an amazing, amazing, amazing director. Um, Elizabeth is a favorite of mine. Yeah, yeah. He's just he's a genius, yeah. and he's he's just the sharpest guy in the world. And he's a great Twitter follow. Can't stress yeah. enough, Shikhar Kapoor. Okay, he writes some goddamn poetry on that site. I follow you, so I'll follow him. So that, that yeah, site's yeah, for free, I'll man. I, I don't get it. But, yeah. So well, it, it comes with a social cost. It, but, you know. <laughs> it comes with. It's very true. <laughs> yeah. It's free, but is it? We're not um, going to go down that dark no, spiral. No, we're not. We're not. We're not. We're not. So, um, so I worked with him and a few others in Annapurna, but I was also doing a lot of copywriting and, and treatment writing and, and script writing and editing and sitting in edit, edit bays with, with Verse Works um, as they were taking in a lot of UN pieces, as they were sort of like doing a lot of commercial endeavors. Um, I became a jack of all trades. Luckily, because there weren't that many other people there to, to, to do those jobs better than me. Not yeah. that I was good at it. I was just there. Yeah. And so by proxy, I, I sort of like got good at certain things because I had, I was like, you know, um, any port in a storm, give it to Ed because we're going to crash the ship. And so, um, there's something to being the fixer. You know, there's something to being the, the shortstop, the utility player in an organization. You learn a lot of skills and it, I mean, it, it, I hope that it prepares one to build organizations, actually. Like, I yes. think there's something about, you know, th- that role that lets you when, you, when you see all the different parts, you know, and you've just got, you know, we, we, we sort of worship uh, the, the apotheosis, like someone who's so skilled at one thing, and yet I think the world is, is ultimately run on the backs of people who are good at a bunch of stuff. 
you you also learn what you like. You you yeah. learn you learn what your interests are and and what you're willing to do for 40, 50, 60 hours a week and 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 take home with you at night That's and on true. the weekends. Very true. I can tell by your expression that I'm <laughs> speaking truth right now. Um, yeah. But you know, it's the 10,000 hours thing. You know, mm-hmm. Ever since I was an assistant to Guy and I was writing in in that capacity, I I, I had started. You know, the clock started on my right. 10,000 hours, and I'm not there yet by any means but like i've gotten pretty far with with dragons and 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 with with smuggler then verse works obviously became uh, here be dragons and and i sort of left that annapurna relationship and and became dragons full-time mm-hmm. uh and i became sort of a full-time staff writer and then dispatch happened and i i basically wrote a pitch uh pitch deck and some scripts and we took it out and oculus was into it and uh it was the right time right place for both us and oculus to do something original um and so we did and that was pretty much all my last year was making that one thing oh wow what was it what was it like to go from having all these different projects you were touching all the time to just working on one thing for a year you know it's it's kind of like i have to imagine that if if you're if you're like a an actor or or if you're you know you're on maternity leave or paternity leave and you have a very high stress job and you, you everyone knows to leave you alone and mm-hmm. give you your time to do your thing um at first you're very grateful for for that time and that focus that allows you to kind of like put your priorities in line and then you're wondering why the phone stopped ringing <laughs> and you're like shit am i in trouble like does <laughs> nobody does nobody like me anymore but it, it was good in that i was able to focus uh but there were definitely certain fires that needed some more putting out and so i i i, I did a lot of balancing between dispatch and, and other work um but by and large everyone's very good to, to me and to the project and, and the project, uh, you know, what I perceive to be, you know, good quality project is, is because of a lot of the people that were there to make it good. Yeah. Where do you want to go with this? I mean, is, is you've been doing VR for a while now, you've been working this form. I imagine you still, you're probably still interested in films. Well, but, but, do you see yourself continuing to pursue the VR side of things? Good question. Uh, so I just got a script option to feature. Mm. Uh, so I, I'm still very active in writing um, features and writing for, for TV even. Uh, I didn't know that I could even do that until I just kind of like sat down and with a buddy of mine, we've been cracking a story for the past five years. Oh, and wow. only in the past year has it, has it gotten pretty serious. So we're we're pitching a pilot around that in some small way or large way actually has to do with VR. Um, and sort of before I answer the rest of the question, just to talk briefly about this one project, it's it's sort of my understanding that what the VR world needs, apart from location-based stuff, which is awesome, and arcades, which is happening, and great experiences, which are definitely around right now, there needs to be some sort of... Um, pop culture mainstay that is reminding people about VR and and teaching them about it and sort of getting them into it. And so uh, Ready Player One maybe can answer that. Mm-hmm. It can maybe be that 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 piece of pop culture. 
I'm very excited for that film, although I didn't much like the book, and I hate what they're doing with those goddamn posters. No, the posters. The posters can, can oh, die of fire. Have you seen someone... <laughs> They've been, I hope I know what you're going to say. I'm going to let you go. There was, there was one where someone did Schindler's yes, List. Yes, I saw one Schindler's where they List. Did, where they did 120 Days of Sodom, the Criterion Collection, and it was just... I saw Antichrist. Oh, my, my goodness. My buddy, my buddy made a, a photoshopped Antichrist I mean, poster. <laughs> I got to hope that whoever in the marketing team decided to do that knew it was coming. They were like, look, <laughs> we're going to do this, and they're going to meme the fuck out of this thing. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, because because if they didn't, if they didn't, they they are so divorced from reality. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's a really really good point. Yeah. Um, they're not making it easy to be excited about this film. I can tell you that right now. I got a I got a bit of a. I mean, I I didn't. I, I mean, the book was okay. People like people came to me and were like, oh, you're gonna love this. Oh, you're gonna love this. And I started up and like, and I actually like, I started up and I was like, oh God, I put it down. And then I picked it up <laughs> because it was just so exactly what those posters are right at the start. It was just all like, all, hey kid, remember the 80s? 80s, 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 80s. I like a retro. And like, I'm just like, wow, you really did write fanboys, didn't you? Uh, and and then, you know, uh, it's it's good. I tried to read Armada, and I was like, this is literally the same book with a weirder, creepier fixation, you know, and I just couldn't, could not do that one. But, um, no, my only, my bone to pick is just the, you shouldn't have the Iron Giant in a fight scene of any kind. You just, like, that's against the spirit of what the Iron Giant is, and I feel yeah. like the Iron Giant's one of those, and also the Iron Giant's just one of those things that's like, it's it's a total one-off. Warner's doesn't make a lot of animated films. What few animated films they did manage to make were usually like connected to the superhero stuff, which was great. Or it was it was Space Jam. That was like yeah. the one time when like the the team out of Warner Animation, post the heyday of the Animaniacs, made one. You know, I think it's even an adaptation, right? And it's like a Brad Bird film. It's a Brad too. Bird yeah, film. It's a Brad Bird film, yeah. right? So and just like to. To no, I feel you, man. Yeah, it's no. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's not a good look. It's not a good look. There's a lot about that film that's just not a good look, you know. And I, I'm, I'm I'm and I love Spielberg. I lo- yeah yeah of course you know, he's, he's Spielberg. I like AI. I'm one of the five. I people fucking like... love AI. Oh sweet Dude, AI. This all became the way. an AI podcast. So. <laughs> I can I can I can go back to Toe to Toe by AI right now. Oh yeah, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> AI is fantastic. I think AI wasn't the film that people either wanted or expected which is like okay but and everyone gets the ending wrong everyone thinks it's aliens it's not aliens it's advanced robots it's so obvious if you just uh, yeah that's yeah. that's actually the first time that i have oh, ever sorry. been no that's great it's <laughs> yeah, great yeah. you should don't hide those things from me any yeah. information give yeah me. no um no it's an excellent excellent film but i also i mean you know very much in that spielberg fashion his films are for kids who maybe didn't have the best childhood in some way it's true they're not for picturesque childhoods i mean there is this sort of sheen of picturesqueness even on spielberg's own personal you know origin story but beneath that surface there was like cheating and divorce and yada yada and all these things happening and the kids not really knowing what it means and with ai 
and sort of the central relationship between David and his, and his mom, you know, I that watching that, it's you can so easily transport your own emotions, yeah, and your own relationships into that sort of central, um, uh, you know, dual sort of thing, just because the it, it's it is so dreamlike, it is so beautiful, it is so the music is the way it is. It's just a very inviting film. How can I, you know what? I'm gonna do something. I haven't. I, I watched it when it first came out, and I haven't revisited it. And now, now I want to revisit AI. I'm gonna revisit AI. It's a good time. I watched yeah. it last year, mm. just on a whim, and um, boy, are there some parts that you know aren't that great. But uh, Brendan Gleeson is amazing in it, <laughs> and like Jude Law's really Jude great. Law's fantastic yeah. in it. It's got a really fun, great cast. So yeah. I totally recommend getting into it again. Yeah. yeah. How do we land on the, oh, because um, television? Oh yeah. yeah. So so I mean, I, without kind of getting into the actual specifics of the thing, it is a TV show essentially where a a kid who's been displaced and is living with somebody that he his uncle who he doesn't really know that well is with this recluse guy. So not a happy childhood. Not a happy childhood. <laughs> he uh, and he's running away from. So he's not, he's not running away so much as he's been sent away from something for something that happened. Mm-hmm. He finds this mysterious machine in his, in his uncle's basement. His uncle used to be a video game designer, and, and it's this VR contraption, and it sort of becomes this vehicle for like a murder mystery. Um, but what that does is it keeps VR sort of in the public lexicon, and it uses it. In the same way as like Strange Days, for instance, or like even in certain moments in like Minority Report, yeah. it, it's a vehicle. It's a storytelling vehicle that people can start to understand or appreciate or have a relationship with in a different way. This sort of industry, which is, you know, still very much burgeoning, still mm-hmm. very much coming into its own. It needs these sort of cultural touchstones so that people can say... I haven't done VR, but I've seen that thing. Yeah. And like, that's cool. That's interesting because like in the 90s, we had very, very bad VR, but we had a ton of cultural touchstones, like right on up to The Matrix, which is sort of like the last. I mean, if you think about it, what is the what is the Matrix? I can't tell you. You have to see it for no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Matrix, the it's automatic. It's, just, it's bad. That's this. That was the thing that that was. This is why I, I had no great love of the Ready Player One book. Is as I was reading, I was like, "All, oh, you mean I could have written a novel? Like, it's like <laughs> I, if I just let my cheese go, you know, like I could have been rich." The answer I, is no. Yeah, <laughs> nobody ever do that again. Yeah, please don't, don't. Um, there's, although you know, you got to give it like it, it definitely inspired some folks. So sure. the punch people are gonna be like, "Oh, he really doesn't like it." It's like, no, I really don't. Um, but we had all this stuff. We had Lawnmower Man. We had, yeah. you know, we had memories of Tron. You know, like all these things are about telling us. And then, and then the real internet came, and it was pop up ads, and you know, twenty eight twenty and forty four k, and then finally like you know DSL lines, and it was just it was so lame. And the VR were was you know put two television sets on your head and try and keep your head up and it just everything was just like oh this is what we got like where's where's the bit where I like plug a, a headphone jack behind my ear and I'm just magically transported in this other space yeah and and then you know the tech world we've got is the iPhone and just it just it's ah you're right we need a we need 
cultural touchstones to get us dreaming about the possibilities of a digital frontier again because we've been living on a digital frontier and it turns out it's awful <laughs> this digital frontier but it's it's there's still got to be a place of you know imagination it's starting to get pretty okay though like like there's you know what what we're seeing and and, and I'm I'm certainly not sort of like the most tech savvy person probably in this room or in my office or, or by any means, I, I, I stick to the creative. But I have to be sort of abreast on some of the tech because that informs the creative. Every day there's a new thing. Just today, we were talking about this project that we're writing a pitch for and um, there's just this new thing that we can do that I didn't know that the, this afternoon. And then a few hours later, we had a conversation about it and I was like, well, that will fit perfectly with this thing. There's never, I don't know that there's really been a time in the sort of growth or evolution of storytelling. And I don't want to sound like I'm evangelizing for, for VR, or AR that much, because I think it's a very worthwhile platform and, and tool for storytelling. I certainly don't think it's like sliced bread. You know, it, it's not better than movies. It's not better no. than TV. It's just another thing yeah. that, that can be great. Yeah. But we've never experienced a time where, like, day by day, you're finding out there's a new way to tell that story, a new function, a new thing. Yeah. That's insane. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the rate of change. And, like, we get we get numb to it, you know. But think back to, you know, three years ago and what a phone could do. Think yeah. back to, what, a year and a half. Think back... You know, just just the fact that I own a Nintendo Switch now, and I and I, I I love it to death. And you know, five years ago, that was functionally impossible. And, exactly. And it's just it's insane. It's totally crazy. Well, five years ago, it was in it was in Nintendo's sub basement as they were you know working out the kinks or doing whatever. So yeah. imagine what's in the sub basements right now. And and that it's that, going to be that PlayStation pill in those from those ads. The PlayStation Nine, you're just going to swallow it. It's just going to be yeah. That's 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 the new that's the new cult. <laughs> that's the new mass <laughs> wiping out. Of oh finish. no! Don't <laughs> go there. I went really dark. Dark. Um, dark. No, but it's. I, I think you know. Back to Ready Player and back to this thing that I I've been writing, uh, and back to my ambitions outside outside of VR. I still love VR and I want to make more VR and I obviously work for a company that, you know, that's that's a lot of our focus is VR, AR, those kinds of things. They also open up pathways to tell stories outside of those mediums. Mm. So we, we shouldn't just be thinking of, of VR or AR as platforms, but also fodder, also vehicles within other stories. Mm. And so that's something I think we're going to see a lot more of. Um, and hopefully it's it's really good. It's the really good thing that that we need most of all right now. Yeah, you know? I mean, but if, if if you want to be a storyteller and you want to you want people to sort of really experience your stories in sort of a a um, a more mass consumption level, um, you know, AR can it can achieve a lot, and we're going to see some interesting story game developments kind of in that space. VR is a lot more of a limited. Uh, audience capacity um, but it all depends on why you're getting into storytelling in the first place it's something that we talk about a lot at the office and something that I've been really adamant about expressing is um, what makes a good story like what makes a good piece of, of narrative and for me it has to have uh, 
the right balance of, of sugar in medicine. Mm. It's got to have enough sugar in there to get people in the seats, to get them watching that thing or experiencing that thing. It's got to have enough medicine to sort of, you know, expose something or illuminate something once they're there. What was the last thing you saw that did that? The last thing that I saw that did that, actually it was last night. Ooh. I saw, it's, it sounds fucking terrible, terrible that I'm admitting this um, to, to you in this microphone. Uh, I saw Some Like It Hot for the first time last night. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that, that movie in a really strange way has a lot of echoes of Get Out, mm. but in like the 50s or late 50s. Or so yeah. essentially it's, you know, it's... it's two dudes parading around as women because they're they're being chased by a, a mob of like Chicago gangsters and they go out in Florida to perform some shows and they have to basically live as women but as they live as women they're experiencing everything that women go through the cat calling the butt pinching this that um the the sort of like passive and also aggressive um put downs just everything to do with the culture dynamic back then and billy wilder was doing that shit back then yeah he was exposing those inequities back then oh it's always interesting to go deep into the past in hollywood or like get to like the pre-code stuff and just see like whoa there's this whole there's always these moments where you're like oh we could have gone we could have we could have leapt forward a couple of decades like at almost any time Yes. You know, like frustratingly. So people are going to look back at this era of stuff and be like, oh, my God, you know, like they had this in front of them and they took them how long to get there? You know, yeah. it's absolutely. Yeah. No, we could we could go on at length. We should we should talk movies sometime. Um, let's 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 pull it back to to the, 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 the thing at hand, though. Um, dispatch. Uh, hit Sundance. Um, it's it's available for people, right? They can just yeah. download it if they've got the Rift or the or the gear, right? So Dispatch is on the Oculus platform, uh, Rift and Gear, and it is four episodes. The first episode is free. It's a five and a half minute episode. Uh, both Oculus and Here Be Dragons were very curious about um, payment models in, mm-hmm. in the VR ecosystem, and so we decided jointly to. Um, have a, a, a sort of like uh, just a very small fee for the third, or second, third, and fourth episodes. So you have to pay like $3 to unlock episodes two, three, and four. Um, and so in that way, uh, you know, every episode was built with like a climax and, mm-hmm. and with, like, with a cliffhanger. Um, and in that way, it sort of is uh, conducive to a, a price model. Um, so far, it's been really interesting. We've gotten a lot of people who've loved the project, who've kind of um, uh, have been very vocal about it being this different thing in the VR space. A lot of people who have uh, pay, you know paid for the other episodes, and, and so what that does is it gives us an understanding of of, of the uh, veracity of the VR community, the size of the community, mm-hmm. how interested they are in pursuing something. Uh, that has a narrative in it without interactivity, without um, sort of the, the bells and whistles of some very uh, amazing, but also very um, interactively involved experiences. It's purely a narrative where you're not doing anything but just watching and moving around if you want to. Yeah. 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 What's You've got the, the, the TV pilot that you're working on. You've got the feature you just sold. Anything else on the, on the plate at the moment? 
Yeah, um, there's a few VR things that I'm kind of circling. Uh, just I'm, I'm, you know, Here Be Dragons is is um, you know a, a client service company. We're a VR studio. We want to make things for for clients and and for for entities, and and we we love doing that. Um, I love telling original stories and so it's been an interest in my of mine to tell more original stories and, and bring more things into the vr space that maybe we didn't think belonged there a few years ago mm. and and in that way i'm hoping that dispatch is kind of opening people's eyes into what kind of a story can exist in that space um so i'm pursuing a few things in vr uh i've got this really fun ar idea that we're kicking around in the office um that I'm, I'm hoping to kind of prop up on its feet in the next couple of months, just prototyping and seeing what it is, how it works. It's kind of a game um, that I can't say too much about, but um, Obviously. it's uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna aim to solve a lot of issues in terms of how do you get somebody playing an AR experience slash story in a way that kind of like keeps them coming back and sort of elongates the time that they're doing it, but also mm. gives you a reason for having something in your hand. Mm. That's, that's something that I was proud about with Dispatch is the reason you're watching it, the reason you're in that space is because this person is imagining all these things and you're privy to the audio, but also the visuals of the imagination. But, you know, with, with AR, I've done so much AR where there's no reason to have a phone or a tablet or whatever in your hand. Right. It's just it's just the device by which you're you're experiencing the story. I feel like if you know why you have that tablet in your hand, then you're you're more inclined to 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 not feel the weight of it. You're more inclined to stay in the moment with it. You're more inclined to fall effortlessly into the story and see it as an apparatus that belongs in the story and not just in your reality. It's not this artifice. Interesting. So it's not it's not the window into the world of the AR. It's part of the world. It, it itself is like the physical manifestation of this alternate reality. If you yeah. are the character in that story, yeah. that character is having a thing in their hands yeah. that is the tablet. Of course, for them, it's not a tablet. It's a certain device right. that performs a certain function. Um, it's almost like a, a little duh. You know, like there's, there's a <laughs> level of it where it's like, oh, of course, of course. Yeah. Of course. It, it is, it's totally a well duh, but at the same time. But it took so long to get to. It took, know? it took us years and years to get to the well does that, we, that we've gotten to. And, yeah. and, and, you know, we're. I often call those things Apple obvious, right? Is it, like, cause have, of, no, no, because like the way Apple is, right? Oh, or like when you finally yes. get like an app and you're like, oh, it just works and all these things. And it's like, and it's, it's years of them and it's years of other companies, like all like trying the million different things. And finally, like they'll produce the shiny consumer version of it. And it's just, and it just works. And it just works. And whatever the solution is, just feels super obvious. Yes. But it's this stack of history of, of designs and choices that led to it. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Simple is always the hardest. That was what, oh God, so yeah. my old boss guy, every time I'd write something, he'd turn it back and he'd say, simple, think simple. Everything should be simple. Yeah. It got to be where I hated that word, but mm -hmm. he was right. Yeah, no, I know. I've been there. Yeah. Edward, this was fantastic. This has been so much fun, man. All right. We'll do this again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to.
once again, thank you to Edward Robles of Here Be Dragons for being our guest on the show today. If you want to dig up some more about Dispatch, about dragons in general, dragons.org is the website. Uh, and you can, I'll put the, I'll put the link for Dispatch because it's one of those dragons.org slash creator slash recent dash work slash work slash. I'm going to put the link up in the show notes for you. Dispatch is the last part, um, obviously. Actually, not not necessarily. Obviously, uh, URLs, URLs. Um, they're 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 a universal resource. Occasionally, they're located. Oh, just imagine how much w- worse my dad jokes would be if I was an actual father, and not just some. Anyway, um, <laughs> no, I don't have any illegitimate children out there that I know of. Um, if they are, they're only in junior high. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Oh my God. Um, some mornings, man, some mornings you get, you get a very specific version of me. Hey, do you want that very specific version of me more regularly in your life? Let's talk about the irregular then. The irregular is our new podcast. That is a backer only exclusive that I probably should have mentioned when I was trying to pitch the Patreon so hard, but I'm very uncomfortable trying to sell myself. It's also one of the reasons why I probably uh, uh, stopped uh, acting, not because I don't like performing, uh, but because uh, selling yourself. I mean, there's there's a certain irony to uh, this whole Patreon crowdfunding nonsense stuff, um, because uh, I I walked away from acting because the thought of people. And this is also why I don't use tinder the thought of people looking at a photo of me and being not that one never having gotten never having had a chance to perform for them um yeah no just just no no and yet here we are here we are begging for money um because the world is is a crazy place and that one, I think, you know, I'll save that riff for The Irregular. The Irregular is, like I mentioned, a podcast that is for backers only at the $5 level. It's one of our new things. I'm not going to do a full pitch right now. Don't worry. There's other things to talk about. Um, there's there's something really big to talk about. So just hold on for a second. Uh, but just, you know, check it out. Check out what we're doing at patreon.com slash no presidium. Uh, the Irregular are short bursts. There's a, there's a private, um, you know, audio feed there so you can get it in a podcast reader um just like you would anything else and yeah uh trying something new trying to do a little paywall action uh to see if that helps out we give away a lot here um north american newsletter which if you haven't signed up for you should sign up for that covers like everywhere that isn't la and new york the la and new york newsletters uh this podcast the website the social media feeds um I, I would, I really want to know what it's like when there's some, you know, professional time levels put into this whole thing. Okay. Speaking of professional time levels and this whole thing, we got to talk about kind heaven for a second. You're like, kind heaven? What's kind heaven, Noah? Well, um, kind heaven is this development that's going on. Uh, it's going to be built into, it's, it's, it's an attraction that's being built into a development, I think called Link at the Promenade uh, in Vegas. Uh, the 
the CEO of Walden Media, um, some designers, and Perry Farrell, who not only is a porno for pyros, but is also one of the founders of Lollapalooza. They've all gotten together, and they're building out this like Southeast Asian-themed attraction. Now, Vegas is really known for doing the whole, we're going to build, you know, we're building Paris, we're building New York. It's like, why go anywhere else? We can just go to Vegas. Like, that's a that's a classic Vegas, you know, move. Um, this one's, this one's pushing that in, in a particular direction in that it's like there's going to be like brands from Asia you can't get anywhere else. There's going to be like, you know, a, a hidden temple thing or, 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 or I, I don't know, I've, deadline wasn't very clear. Um, on on what all the details were, uh, we'll we'll try and do some digging around to see what we can do. Maybe we'll even see if we can get a hold of the folks who are are working on it and building it. Um, the reason why we mentioned this is that it is being built as immersive, and it looks like they're building in like a whole narrative layer. They talk a lot about mythology. They talk a lot about three sixty storytelling. There are going to be music venues in there, which is one of the reasons why you have you know, a Perry Farrell is part of it. And, you know, a 10th of a billion dollars is being poured into this thing. Um, I'm fascinated by it because it is a very large scale version of, and vision of, you know, something that in casual conversation, like I've talked with people a lot over the past couple of years, which is, you know, how do we create like permanent hubs for this kind of work? Um, this, this feels a little more like adult Disneyland, Although they also have said that it's going to be like all ages during the day and then like kind of pivot at night. And it's clearly a reaction to the the casino industry, which is really a hotel industry, uh, recognizing that, you know, the casinos appeal to, you know, certain generations. But, you know, millennials and younger aren't necessarily coming in the way they were there. They need to be something different. And experience not only is like the really hot thing, but they look at theme parks and resorts and they say, wow, those are doing really well by theme parks and resorts. I mean, they look at Disney and they look at where Disney is trying to go next with Star Wars land with the hotel in Orlando, which is why we have this show and which is why we talk about this broad range of things and why we try in our advocacy for this work to raise up the standard of the individual moment. This is something I'm probably going to come back more often to because it's a thought that's coalescing in my mind. There's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. All right. This is the critical side of me. There's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to raise the bar on these experiences. And the thing I worry about, and I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, they don't know what they're doing over there. Um, cause I haven't seen what they're doing over there. So how can I say they don't know what they're doing? Um, the thing that worries me is that in the quest to build an amazing physical plant for these things, and believe me, I want that. And that flyover video of Star Wars land gave me probably more goosebumps than any Star Wars trailer has in the past couple of years. And those things just, anyway. Um... <laughs> I don't want the human element gone. That moment of connection, which is so critical to the work, um, comes through the human. And there's some interesting things going on out there. There's 
I'll, I need to get my hands on that Google Lightfield demo that came out this week. I think uh, Oculus and Vive, uh, you can you can view it both. Google's been playing around with Lightfield, and Lightfields are going to be essential for 360 video because uh, it just takes it beyond. If we haven't had, you know, we'll do some more on that on the regular. I'll do a rant about Lightfields, but if you don't know the basics. Essentially, uh, instead of being like a flat image you're looking at, it manages to give like a, th- a 3D volumetric capture of space, um, you know, um, in in video and not in a render. So it really blurs the line between, you know, a, a computer-generated space and photography. And apparently, and I would love to see this, they even give a little bit of demo of what... Um, what uh, eye contact would be like in a six degree of freedom experience in a light field, which frankly boggles. Like I need to see that. Like I'm imagining things and I need to see if what I'm imagining is what it is. Um, We're really far forward in terms of where the research is to converging our, our creative and technical streams here, right? Merging the performance capture, merging the, the, the depth of that acting work, the depth of writing, the, the sense of space, and, and managing for it to almost be like an option of whether like, oh, you can go to the... the it's going to be almost be like senses. It's like, oh, do you want to do you want to go to the full five sense thing, or do you you want to do the, the 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 four sense thing or the three sense thing, right? Five senses: sight, sound. We can do that in in VR. Um, smell, taste, touch. We can do a little bit of touch, right? A little bit of haptic feedback. Um, then there's like you know kinesthetic awareness, right? Which isn't really a sense. So like six sense, right? Things are. Things are really interesting. Will we get there? Um, the state of the world? I don't know. Um, I sure hope so, though. I sure do. And yeah, they're they're doing some technical stuff. Apparently, they're they're using technology in some way. Um, I I sometimes find the trade magazine uh, articles about the immersive stuff very frustrating. Because it'll be like they're and they're using technology, and I'm like, this reads like a thing about Theranos. It's like they're magically making blood, you know, thing, and then you know, four or five years later, it's like, oh, it was all bullshit the entire time. So, um, if someone out there is related to the Kind Heaven Project and would like to talk to us or knows how to connect with those people, I got questions. I got so many questions. So, um, holler at me. Noah at noprescinium.com. All right. Enough of that. Uh, oh, gosh. Yes. Work calls. Uh, maybe even literally. Here's what's up. Um, I need you to go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash noprescinium. I need you to check out the stuff that's there. Um, we were getting some reviews this weekend. Uh, you're going to get a North American newsletter next week. Um, we're going to streamline some stuff in terms of how to pitch us, uh, that's in the works. And uh, yeah, 
all that kind of stuff. Uh, let's do the thing we do at the end. Let's do the credits. Um, the sustaining backers for No Persinium are Bradley Smith, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Arthur Tubman, Ari Herstand, and, of course, Ross Sigworth. Thank you, Ross. Uh, the music for the show is Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The music of the show, the music for the show is by, it isn't, like Chris Porter did not become the music, God, Matt, Jen, and Julian would kill me if I turned Chris into music. I'd be killing the writer just to have a song. Um, anyway, hi, Chris. Uh, <laughs> You can reach me, Noah, at nopersinium.com. Uh, you can find the website, of course, nopersinium.com. We're at nopersinium on Twitter. We're at no underscore persinium on Instagram or at nopersinium on Facebook. And blah, 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 blah. I'm at Noah J. Nelson on Twitter in case you like me. Uh, Patreon.com slash nopersinium uh, is my new verbal tick, as I mentioned earlier. And yeah, that's all the that's all the things. Um I, I hope you have a wonderful time this weekend doing whatever you're going to go do, catching whatever shows, running around in whatever immersive playgrounds you found here, there, everywhere. Uh, Jessica's going to be at GDC next week, keeping an eye on the VR, AR stuff for us. And I'm looking forward to seeing what she uh, sees. And uh, we're uh, due to talk to our buddy Brian Bishop about his very personalized experience with Deep Dive Austin and Meow Wolf uh, from South by Southwest. And that might just make it onto next week's show. Until then, I'll see you at the show.